Uh, Howdy. <laughs> We're back. We're back. We have an awesome guest. Yep. Do you uh, want to say the name and affiliation uh, of our guest? Sure. Uh, her name is Jessica Bullman Posen, and she is a professor at Columbia Law School. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's she, Columbia, not Colombia. Colombia. She is uh, a scholar of federalism in its many guises and facets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I became aware of her work in the context of a seminar I'm teaching this semester. Uh, she's written lots of stuff, including this recent paper that we're going to talk about uh, called Executive Federalism, I guess. Is, is that the title? Executive Federalism? That, that's how, in my it's mind, in it. my mind, that's what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and it's awesome. And she's awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes with, with its real title. A, it's a good conversation. It's a great conversation. She was, she was delightful. Should, thumbs up. Two you, thumbs up. We, so we won't talk about our spring breaks? No. No, nobody we wants to. We might do that next week. Oh, next week. So next week. Because we're going to talk about our own stuff next week. I feel like week we shouldn't promise anything. because We'll have a mailbag. Mailbag, and then we, we, we've written some of our own stuff. Maybe we'll just chat about stuff mm, we've written. Yeah. Or whatever. We'll talk about whatever. People write in oral argument podcast at gmail.com, oral argument podcast at gmail.com, or, or go to our website, oralargument.org, where all the, all the great shows are and our guest index and all that. And you can actually hit contact there and, and leave, us a, leave us a bit of feedback there. You know, a lot of, like I said the other time, a lot of um, fly by night drug companies have been using that contact form to let great me know about, form. about yeah. deals on all kinds of great medicines. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we're on Twitter at Oral Argument, also on, on the Book of Faces, Oral Argument there. Mm. So lots of ways to get in touch with us, and we can, I guess we'll deal with some of that next week. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, and anything else for this week? Nope. Oh, again, I feel like earlier in the run of the show, we just spin this stuff out more, and we'd eventually hit something. Yeah. We, I think there was more of a tolerance to kind of just, you know, spin a yarn. Nope. I think there's that one time I told a story. I think it was a spring break story about Big Red Diesel. You remember that? I don't remember that. I need to go back and listen to that. That was one of the times we were driving to Grand Canyon and basically had a bunch of people and switched off. So we drove all through the night. And Wow. Why'd you call it Big Red Diesel? <laughs> don't you remember this story? There was I, I don't. I'm the cashier, I don't, some, the and cashier in a gas station was like three in the morning in Memphis or something like that. And, and as a matter of like corporate logo, whatever, had to wear a big button that said, ask me about big red diesel. Oh my Lord. <laughs> so I asked my, my buddy, should we, do you think that person at this point really wants to be asked about the big red diesel? <laughs> and my buddy had gotten some coffee. You know, I didn't drink coffee uh, at that time. You were kidding me. No, How I old were you? I was uh, 20, 20 maybe. Wow. And hmm. about four miles down the road or whatever, after getting it, he was, I see him dumping the coffee out of the window and I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I think I got some of that big red diesel. <laughs> that was, that was his comment on the coffee. Yeah. Nice. Had another road trip this time with my son, this, this spring break. We'll talk yeah. about it next week. So yeah. let's get, let's get to our conversation with, with uh, Jessica, which as we said, was delightful, maybe even more delightful than the conversation we're having now. Uh, I think there's no doubt that it was more delightful. <laughs> Oh boy, these days. Am I right, Joe? Yeah, so here we go. Hello? Jessica. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah, this is, this is Christian. Great. Hi, Christian. How are you? I'm doing great. And, and this is Joe. I'm so glad that you're joining us today because just yesterday I was discussing your unbundling federalism paper with the students in my seminar about uh, marijuana law and policy. Um, 
that I'm teaching here at UGA. Yeah, let's be clear. This is a class that you're teaching, not... Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's called From Contraband to Commodity and uh, Regulating the New Marijuana Markets. And so we've had these sessions, a few sessions, sort of in in the middle to late part of the seminar about, I call it a federalism palooza because it's this issue you, you can't, federalism is, is basically in every facet of the marijuana legalization debates these days. And yeah. your unbundling paper was really great. And it was, uh, we also talked about Ernest Young's uh, paper on, uh, called nullification, something, something, something. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I, so it was great. It's a great paper and I enjoyed talking about it with my students and they enjoyed reading it. So this is super good to talk to you. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, I have to talk to my students uh, next week about marijuana, too, in my federalism seminar. So maybe we can share some thoughts. It's it, You talk about it in a number of your papers. I think there's uh, seven uh, that of your papers <laughs> that use the word federalism in the title, and five of them have the word marijuana at least once. In the paper? Yeah. So you've done some you've done some analytics on I have Jessica's done, work. I've, I've done yeah. some... Uh, big, big data. That's right. <laughs> a big data, that bad boy, and that's what I found. <laughs> Did you search for other words and try to determine, like, I don't know, maybe maybe you've de- you've determined like Jessica's uh, like you know her her family dynamics and everything. Like you can like infer all these things. No, from, I didn't do any of that. Although yeah. I, I have a feeling she may actually be Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> this is on an engram analysis or something. Correct. How, how do you want to get into this topic, Joe? I mean, is, you guys are kind of the the experts on this, and um, I I I, th- I found the paper fascinating. I read the executive federalism piece. As did I. And, and um, I'm tempted to say it blew my mind, but it, it's that kind of thing where like you read it and you yeah, that's kind of how things work, you know? <laughs> right. And, and why aren't more people talking about it this way is, is this, this sort well, of follow up in my mind about, well, right. and the reason why I thought it would be great to talk to Jessica about this issue is because, you know, the last few years we've seen so much uh, activity where it seems like state attorneys general and governors are playing a really important role in how federal law plays out. And they pull the judiciary into it in the most salient examples, things like the Affordable Care Act litigation, now immigration litigation. Uh, If you know about marijuana legalization, you understand that issue, although it's not in the courts. It's, you know, uh, the Cole Memorandum from 2013 that kind of lays out the the current posture, which may get withdrawn, it may not. But uh, you know, the, it, it's it's so obvious that state level executive officials are playing a critical role in how national law plays out. But there, but you feel like God, there's what's the language to talk about that? Yeah, let me just set it up a little bit for people who don't you know, have the federalism background that the, that the paper probably assumes. Because when we talk about federalism, usually we're talking about federal state relations. The states have power over some things. Federal government has power over, over other things. There, there's a broader way of talking about federalism that brings in local governments and different kinds of scales. But generally, we're talking about federal state relations. And traditional federalism questions have been of the type, does a federal statute, which is not altogether clear, completely eliminate the ability of a state either to regulate or do a particular thing? Does, it, does, does federal uh, legislation preempt state legislation in the same area? Um, there are other traditional federal federalism concerns about whether the federal government has the authority to legislate in a particular area or whether that's an area where the states have where our federalism, capital O, capital F, to, to quote Kennedy, 
leaves that area entirely for the states. And so there's some kind of constitutional restriction on on, on the Fed's power beyond just the restriction that comes with the enumerated powers right. to legislate in that area. Another one is um, uh, this case, um, uh, Prince and, and New York, um, which the, the anti-commandeering, the anti-commandeering which says that basically the, the federal government can't through statute or otherwise uh, commandeer or order state officials to carry out federal activities. So there's there's that. There's um, the Medicaid expansion that we saw in Obamacare one, the restriction on the spending clause. So all of these things are traditional. So and let me stop you there. Legislative. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's what's what's great about that is because I think that what you, the stuff you just said is stuff that a lot of our students walk in the door on day one understanding. It's kind of a, and I don't mean to diminish it this way because I love schoolhouse rock. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a schoolhouse rock, separate spheres federalism. I, I would right? say they, they come in ready to learn that stuff. Yeah, they, yeah, or they've heard about it a little bit and yeah. they're ready to hear more. So Jessica, uh, I think that kind of schoolhouse rock federalism is is even even from the 70s and 80s and 90s in environmental law, not the full story. And, and now there's even more happening that shows it's even m- more not the full story. So help, start complicating the story for us. What are the other ways, if you had a, a 1L come in and say, you know, I thought federalism was states and federal government do different stuff. How would you start to get that student to think uh, better and more accurately? Right. Yeah. So that that's great. I mean, I think as most federalism scholarship of recent decades and to some extent and increasingly judicial doctrine, but as you say, not fully yet, um, has come to appreciate. Really, we have a story of concurrency in the states and the federal government operating in largely overlapping spaces. Sometimes that's through joint programs, through cooperative federalism programs, so-called, not always cooperative, but um, programs in which the federal government is trying to enlist the states to help it carry out federal programs. The environmental context, which you mentioned, is a prime example of this. Um, And so states which have sort of more boots on the ground, more uh, proximity to the people in a lot of these areas become a part of the federal apparatus. They're able to carry out federal programs alongside or on behalf of the federal government. Sometimes the states and the federal government are not actually technically working together as part of a single program, but they're just both operating in a particular domain. And this is true, again, notwithstanding the sort of longstanding celebration of dual federalism of separate spheres in areas even that we think of maybe sometimes as being entrusted to one level of government or the other. So when we hear, for example, the Supreme Court talk about things that are truly local, uh, we'll see courts citing things like education or family law or criminal law. But in all those areas, as in many others, both the states and the federal government are legislating, they're regulating, they're enforcing their laws. Um, And so they end up bumping up against one another, having to work together trying to cooperate, sometimes uh, uh, coming into conflict. And we see, in addition to the legal challenges that arise, a host of administrative, legislative, uh, implementation-based complications that require a lot of working out on the ground, sometimes by high-level officials, sometimes by uh, lower-level administrators. And so much of what doesn't make it into the U.S. reports is actually, I think, what's most vibrant about our federalism today. And that's kind of in terms of the, you know, if you think of, if you want to study the law we have, you might, you might just look like you look in U.S. reports and and treatises and 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 think about these questions that we kind of started with, like how how conceptually does our constitution and um, our, our maybe even our tradition divide responsibility and and how does it say that it's shared, and then you kind of stop there. But 
your your project and and I think the project of a lot of modern scholars is to say, well, now what is the law that we have in terms of the lived experience of the people living under it, and whether those are government officials or citizens. And to understand federalism as we have it, you have to understand the way that it is lived through government officials, which involves negotiation. So how actually on the ground does responsibility for uh, drug enforcement shake out? You know, uh, there's a federal statute, there's a state statute. We can talk conceptually about how one is superior to the other under various circumstances. But in, in, in a very real sense, you don't understand the law if all you understand is that. And, and I take it that's where your paper kind of comes in and, and describes a, a theory of federalism, but a theory of like kind of lived federalism. I think that's true. I mean, although it's interesting even to back up for a second, because I was disparaging for a moment uh, the U.S. reports, which maybe I didn't mean to do as fully, because part <laughs> of it is also just sort of excavating the story behind yeah. some of these classic federalism doctrines or federalism cases. So I think, you know, in your in your um, really helpful catalog a, a few minutes ago about what students will learn about federalism, you mentioned preemption, you mentioned the Commerce Clause, you mentioned commandeering and, and the anti-coercion uh, sort of spending clause principle that's emerged and all of those remain critical areas for case law and then for framing what happens outside of the courts in this negotiation that we're talking about. But if you look at how these cases um, come to the courts, who's on what side, it's never as simple as the states versus the federal government. It's usually some states raising a federalism-based challenge against some part of the federal government um, because of the alliances that crisscross state and federal governments alike. And so we have these tools that are deeply familiar to state and federal actors that are familiar to the courts, um, but that even though we talk about them as if they were policing some boundary between state and federal power as such, aren't really doing that. So even in talking about, as we can now do, you know, in talking about the negotiations on the ground or the administrative or the political kinds of conversations that shape federalism today, those are themselves informed by the possibility of some of these uh, uh, cases, but even the cases themselves aren't really performing the work that we might tend to associate with a separate spheres, sort of 10th Amendment heavy account of our federalism. So there's really like a federalism bargaining in the shadow of the law element going on there, right? I mean, it's like... Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there is some of that, both before and after. So, the, you know, the Medicaid um, expansion decision by the Supreme Court um, in the NFIB versus Stabilius case is an example, too, of how we have bargaining before, but then we also have a lot of bargaining after that decision, too. And one of the more bizarre manifestations, at least if you come to it with the schoolhouse rock sensibility at, at the outset, is the fact that you've not only got, in the litigation, you've not only got states suing the national government, um, you've got senators and congressmen <laughs> who are uh, sort of weighing in on the, in the side of the states, which mm -hmm. is strange, um, mm -hmm. and, and weighing in also on the side of the national government, although uh, that, may, that may happen less often. But that, that brings to the fore the fact that you have these now strongly uh, national, fully national, very strong and strongly polarized political parties that are playing a role in, in sort of scrambling the map so that now differences between state and Fed aren't nearly as significant in people's minds as differences between R and D. And figuring out what to do with that in a federalism discussion is, to me, very challenging, although you sort of seem to do a lot with it that's very productive. So how does that piece come into it for you? Yeah, so I think a few different ways, as you say, both in, in this executive federalism piece and in my prior work on partisan federalism, I'm trying to explore what happens to a federal system um, uh, in which we sort of have the states and federal government conceived as these apolitical or disembodied 
actors, when in fact what we really have is, is partisan competition that is fully national, that's being channeled through state and federal sites alike. So on the one hand, I think it helps us make sense of some dynamics that are pretty obvious, uh, but maybe hard to explain in terms of traditional federalism principles. As you said, the fact that if we see federalism litigation or federalism contests, we see members of the federal government, the national government, aligning themselves with the state challenges to the federal government. And on the other side, we see um, usually some critical mass of states joining with the federal government against the states that are challenging it. So on the one hand, that seems kind of surprising from a traditional federalism perspective. It doesn't seem at all surprising once you write the little D or the R next to various uh, parties' names and can, see can I just how it cashes out. So I think that that the former, the idea that there would be national politicians, maybe senators or, or, or Congress critters, uh, who weigh in on behalf of their states, that wouldn't at all be surprising from the perspective of, say, the framers or the uh, Civil War Amendment reframers, right? I mean, not if it were mem- not not if they were representing that of their own state of their own states, right, which yeah. is which is not how these things look, right? So I'm just yeah. trying to get a little bit more color on the nature of polar. And to what extent is the polarization that we're seeing now like unique, and it's driving this new story of what federalism is in our day and age, and and to what extent is like the, the dream of there not being party politics maybe that was around at the time of the founding, to what extent did that die early on? And how are we seeing something new here? Yeah. So I think um, I'll, I'll say the safe answer to that question. Is <laughs> okay. sort of yes, yes, yes. And no, you know, so we have um, <laughs> the parties, the parties arise, as you, you know, you know, pretty quickly after the founding and in that sense are somewhat surprising, notwithstanding ideas about faction and concerns about groups being set against each other that you see in the Federalist and otherwise. Uh, parties themselves seem to come um, as somewhat of a surprise, at least to the constitutional structure that doesn't anticipate them um, sort of running over a lot of its uh, structural safeguards and protections. And we see pretty intense polarization of the parties throughout our nation's history in some ways I think the middle of the 20th century where we don't see political polarization because we have some artificial features of the parties created by the Jim Crow South and the Democratic Party um, and disenfranchisement means that the polarization we're seeing now isn't quite as much of an aberration as sometimes the popular commentary suggests. So I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to get on the bandwagon of saying this is totally anomalous, and at some point um, we will revert to a state of no polarization or something uh, like that. At the same time, even though I think it's more uh, part of the history and common than maybe some of the um, concerns, you know, about polarization themselves that have arisen suggest, I, you know, I don't mean to deny the fact that the manifestations of our partisanship and our polarization right now are um, are worthy of, of, of alarm and deep concern. So um, I think the fact of polarization and ideological polarization that's at least different from what we had as the post-New Deal administrative state comes into being and the real rise of cooperative federalism and uncooperative federalism and state federal overlap and integration and just the extent of regulation um, in our society come into being. The fact that the polarization that we have seen before in our history, but not with the same extent of federal state overlap and the administrative state that we have now is uh, a, a relatively new phenomenon and shaping both the state 
response to federal um, governance, the federal government's response to states, but but as mediated through these partisan actors, through interest groups that are national in scope that that play at both state and federal sites. Um, so new in its confluence, but maybe old in sort of uh, some of the particulars. And, and I interrupted you earlier on. And I'm sorry about that, but uh, but but I just because I think a lot of what drives your your story here is that we have a a constitutional structure which in conceptually is not about party accountability right as are some parliament you know, it doesn't create kind of transparency of party procedure and party policy right. um it, it rather it diffuses it, it creates multiple opportunities to diffuse responsibility for action or inaction mm-hmm. and, and and this is kind of just the kind of public choice critique of separation of powers right that it's mm-hmm. was designed in order to stop bad things from happening, but it's been a miserable failure because blah, 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 blah. And, my sense is without strong parties, that's not the, 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 the veto points story isn't sort of hopelessly counterproductive. It, it slows things down, but it doesn't make impossible right. uh, governance. Whereas once you add a strong party component to it, it's sort of like, it's amazing anything has ever happened ever. Yeah, because the you know the, the Senate and the House you know famously are are uh, are are constituted differently. Like the methods of selection, they used to be way more different, but now they're they're both popularly elected, but but with different constituencies. And the idea is if they're if they're constituted differently, then they reflect maybe slightly different values, and so you have multiple veto points. But in a situation where party is everything and party discipline is more pure, then basically every institution is an R institution or a D institution. And, it, and setting them even yeah. a little bit yeah. out of phase with each other on the calendar is, ca- is results in a, a chaos of drift uh, from inaction, right. not a chaos of dynamic action, but a, but a, a sort of chaos of stasis. And, and so if you're worried about like democratic accountability and transparency and you look at this, you, you might be pessimistic. But Jessica, part of your story here is that if you look at what happens in this context, which may be otherwise in other places at other times, but in this context, a lot of what happens will occur through executive negotiation among different levels of our federal system. And that it's actually a virtue democratically that at least some of that is kind of behind closed doors. Um, OK, so I've thrown up in a lot of stuff there. And, and I uh, again, I'm sorry I diverted you earlier. I don't know what you want to do with any of this. <laughs> yeah, but I guess maybe picking up on some of uh, you, this this last point, it does seem like if we're trying to design a system from scratch, you, you wouldn't come up with something like what we're dealing with here. But if we're trying to think, if we're trying to think about how we can work with systems we have that are, that are deeply embedded structures that are in the constitution or, 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 or effectively in the constitution based on um, sort of constitutional norms over time, then how do we make the most of this constitutional structure that's not supposed to account for, doesn't anticipate parties as such, and the rise of strong parties, the sort of responsible parties that people in the middle of the 20th century were calling for as a means of creating this sort of democratic accountability um, uh, you both are, are, are suggesting. And then there's the sort of be careful what you wish for um, version of that that we get um, now. So, but if we're going to have partisan polarization or strong parties, which have some virtues, they have certainly um, uh, some bad consequences too, but some virtues in terms of uh, as the responsible parties uh, advocates were suggesting, telling people um, what parties stand for, what kinds of commitments they might stand for, that they're going to make good on those commitments, voting um, in this sort of responsible way. People need heuristics, they need shortcuts um, in terms of picking their representatives. So parties have a sort of organizing 
function. Um, again, not to say there's no downsides to that, but if we think about that being some version of that being either necessary or at least a given in our in our system, then a lot of the trends, I think, in thinking about partisan polarization and about parties and governance in at least the past decade or so have been focusing on the federal government alone. And so seeing the options uh, largely in terms of how much you want to empower or uh, or or seek to constrain the power of the president slash the executive branch more generally the administrative um, apparatus under the president's supervision and so uh, I think you know maybe in a way that was especially suited for the Obama years but there were a lot of articles sort of calling to loosen up some of the constraints on unilateral presidential action um, and as much as you know I might like any given, uh, a decision by a presidential administration that always worried me as a matter of of sort of a thicker democratic uh, uh, input or accountability. And so because I've been thinking about federalism in other contexts for a long time, trying to put together these stories about the relationship between the president and Congress on the one hand and the relationship between the federal government on the state and the states on the other hand, and recognizing, you know, as we've been talking about, that treating these actors as if they are not populated by constellations of, of, of partisan actors who are largely the same uh, partisan actors is not it's not accurate but when you sort of pull out the partisan story at both the federal level and the state level you can see how states might provide um, in the in the best version of, of this story uh, a, a sort of modicum of contestation and democratic input and multiplicity but also uh, the ability to get some things done with multiple actors involved. And so that's where I'm sort of trying to think about the potential value of executive federalism uh, as compared to unilateral federal executive action in particular, or what had seemed to be uh, the, the sort of norm out of D.C., just gridlock and, and an absence of federal legislation. So so let's talk about that. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, let's talk about it in the context of marijuana law, just to get like really concrete, like tell that story. Or, or, mm-hmm. or, climate, yeah. or climate change. Or climate change or that, Obamacare. That, yeah, yeah I, th- I think any example where we've got them really interacting over a problem. So help walk us through what, what your favorite example kind of looks like in a little bit more concrete detail. Sure. Yeah. So they're, they're all a little different. I mean, I can do multiple ones. I can start with marijuana since we've been talking about that um, uh, a little bit on and off. I think with with marijuana, you have at the federal level, the Controlled Substances Act just says uh, 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 that marijuana as possessing or distributing marijuana is uh, a federal crime. And so there's not a lot of room for movement. There are attempts, you know, our favorite um, old fashioned Commerce Clause litigation, right, we had um, in in Raich, and we had um, some attempts to petition the federal government itself to change its its policies, but no action really at the federal level with respect to marijuana legalization, decriminalization, and the states start moving. We have the medical marijuana movement, but most uh, notably in recent years, we have the decisions um, by some states to decide as a matter of state law to legalize marijuana. Um, when states do that, um, the question is, can they do that? What does that mean? Right. So when Colorado and Washington have these ballot initiatives that legalize marijuana um, in 2012, um, the governors of those states sort of immediately have to 
reach out to the federal government, to the Department of Justice, to Attorney General Holder um, and the people working in Washington to say, um, we're trying to create the administrative apparatus that we need um, to sort of tax, to regulate marijuana. Um, but we realize it's still unlawful as a matter of federal law. Mm -hmm. So sort of where does the DOJ stand on this? Um, and we get a really interesting back and forth, only some of which is is public. I'm sure there's even more interesting back and forth behind the scenes within the DOJ between, for example, higher ups at the DOJ and um, DEA officials yeah. um, and others, um, some of which, you know, has been um, uh, gestured to, I think. Um, but um, but at a minimum in this public story, we see um, the DOJ in the years leading up to the Colorado and Washington ballot initiatives, suggesting, you know, that it might back off and it might not. Um, and then um, after the, uh, the sort of successful negotiations between Colorado and Washington and the DOJ um, after the 2012 initiatives, we have the government, the federal government, through um, a memorandum um, by um, uh, Deputy Attorney General James Cole, um, uh, uh, saying, basically, as long as you continue to help us enforce the federal laws with respect to externalities that are a great concern to us, um, gangs and other kinds of violent crime, um, we are going to stand back from enforcing federal law with respect to marijuana possession and distribution in these states. We're going to sort of defer to state law. So you have um, a, a sort of reverse preemption, again, not with legal effect. The federal government could um, uh, change its mind. State law doesn't actually preempt federal law. But as a practical matter, what you have is the federal government saying, OK, we're going to back off and let the states set the law here as a matter of federal as well as state enforcement. Now, now um, here's how I would have thought about it under. So if if we divide like conceptual federalism and then mm -hmm. experiential federalism, which, mm -hmm. which is kind of executive federalism in a way, like under conceptual federalism, I would have thought this would have occurred in the following way, that the state can decriminalize marijuana, which means that its police officers don't no longer arrest people for smoking marijuana or, or trading it or whatever, you know, however they decide to, to loosen up their laws, nor can under kind of, again, conceptual federalism, can the federal government commandeer state officials to make arrests or to make certain reports to it or otherwise to do anything with respect to this policy that it doesn't necessarily want to do, um, at least in, insofar as they're commandeering state actors to do those things. Mm -hmm. But that if, you know, if, if one were to light up a joint next to an FBI agent who's having a, a slice of pie and a cup of coffee in a cafe, that that, that, that agent uh, at least could arrest you and, and arguably should or, you know, it, there would be some uh, um, uh, enforcement discretion and then some prosecutorial discretion as to how what what the federal government ends up doing with that um and, and so that would just be the conceptual story and it'd be kind of the end of things and uh, you you describe the facts on the ground that the that the federal government is kind of in advance exercising its prosecutorial discretion in this in the same way that we've talked about on this show and that people are well familiar with now the um uh, the, uh, uh you know obama's dreamer daca and dapa uh, it, with respect to immigration, decides in advance, we can't deport everybody. Here's how we're going to exercise that authority and essentially creates a rule of law uh, that, that one might have thought and might argue should be statutory, um, it, but kind of bakes that into the, um, to the, to the decision about how to deploy scarce enforcement resources. And so here, too, it seems like in negotiations with the states, the executive branch has 
declared a, at least a federal rule of law within those jurisdictions, which, as you point out, is totally revocable at any time, uh, that says, well, the law is not actually that you, um, that you can't possess marijuana. It's that you can't possess it and be dangerous and be in a gang or something like that, right? We will enforce that. And to understand that, you, you, you know, this is, it's no surprise that conceptual federalism would, would be more popular than experiential because it's a hell of a lot easier to study because <laughs> you just think about <laughs> things, right? But uh, the experiential stuff makes you actually ha- talk, you know, have to study these communications, some of which, as you point out, are, are unknown. So, um, so, so there are questions, that, if I'm right in this kind of description about things and, and I, I'm kind of tracking your thoughts about it, and I don't know if I am, um, then there are lots of questions about legitimacy. I mean, we have the same kind of problem about like the, the legitimacy of federal executive actors using enforcement discretion, which may be necessary and they use all the time, but in patterned, more rule-like ways that essentially uh, amend the law. Is that, if I'm right about that, is that the primary mechanism by which these kinds of um, just uh, these kinds of negotiations occur. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I have a lot of thoughts. So, I, yeah, go, um, go ahead. Yeah. I think um, probably not the primary mechanism. It's one. Um, a lot of the other stories, and we can talk about some of them, don't involve really enforcement at all. They involve various kinds of rulemaking, implementation, waivers. So, things that are a little bit different, um, some equally controversial. But I think uh, one thing that executive federalism sort of draws attention to is the number of tools in the executive's toolkit when dealing with states. Again, not all of which are just empowering of the federal executive, some of which actually give quite a lot of um, discretion or power to the, to the states in the interaction. But there's a lot of different kinds of ways of interacting. So apart from the sort of conceptual story where you either just have clear-cut separate spheres to begin with or a set at least a set relationship between the state and federal in your account of conceptual federalism. It wasn't just dual federalism where either the state or the federal will have control over criminal law. Both in your account had control over criminal law could choose, um, but they still had to each stay in their lanes as Mm -hmm. I I heard you just suggest. So even though both could criminalize marijuana on this account, if the federal government wanted to do it, so be it, but it would have to enforce itself and it couldn't commandeer the states. Likewise, the state could make its own decision, but it couldn't tell the federal government back off. Um, Again, as you suggested, I think that's still somewhat true. Um, I think what's interesting and and sort of implicit in this story of the um, experiential variant of executive federalism also, um, and and as we're moving into a, a, a certainly a new and quite different presidential administration worth thinking about maybe in a different way too, is the way in which the federal executive branch here um, in the marijuana story, in your um, in, in the deferred action immigration programs, um, uh, but I think differently in the two, um, is really trying to just control the federal executive branch itself. So yeah. these memos from... Let's face um, it, it's about survival right now. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, how long can we go without getting it right? You know, let's see if we could go an hour without talking about it, but we can... Yeah, um, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll bracket that for a second and assume yeah. more uh, normal but, times, maybe. Right. Yeah, I mean, before we get there, but I mean, I do think this question of how the higher ups in governments so of the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, how they are engaging with the actual agents who are on the ground to the extent to which they can uh, set rules of conduct um, or set policies that was certainly um, a front and center piece of the challenge in the Texas case on the deferred action mm-hmm. um, immigration plans. But it's going on in the, in the marijuana story, too, where what the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General are really trying to do is also just to get control over the federal executive uh, branch, the federal administrative apparatus, which we just assume 
is sort of, um, I mean, not all of it, but, but in terms of the treatment in the federalism context, we just think, okay, the federal government as one thing, but of course, you know, as, as everyone knows, again, not that it's a unique observation, but just that we have to pull back, what's this federal apparatus? What's the diversity within that? I think the federalism piece, in addition um, to, to providing a sort of counter point, potential counterpoint to uh, decisions coming just from the top in the federal executive branch also provides an opportunity um, for some kinds of negotiation, bargaining, working out throughout the federal executive branch. So the fact that the deputy attorney general here can say to um, other U.S. attorneys, to other uh, members of the Department of Justice, we, the federal government, are doing this in response to the state, sort of using the federalism narrative as a reason for having a consistent federal position, even if that position is deference to the states, um, really underscores the way in which management of the federal executive branch itself can't be taken for granted. And so it becomes, on the one hand, a much more complicated story, but also, I think, um, a, a more correct one when we build in the federalism piece, which is uh, notably absent in the immigration narrative. The Cole yeah. memo, uh, the 2013 Cole memorandum that you were referring to and, and uh, is on its face, a communication to U.S. attorneys and, and other people within the department. Um, mm-hmm. well, you know, well, I, I, in my seminar, we, we, we read it. I had the students read it in the context of, of uh, some of the materials uh, earlier on in the seminar. And, and we've re- come back to it uh, in discussion a number of times because the degree to which I think the Cole memo is sort of a, not quite endlessly fascinating, but nearly endlessly fascinating <laughs> uh, exercise in in um, legal reasoning and rhetoric and pragmatism and the the sense in which it doesn't take a, a conceptual formalism path, but or or a conceptual federalism path, but instead a a a, a results oriented federalism path that that says, hey, states, uh, if, you, if you think about results, uh, your decision to legalize marijuana, if you robustly regulate it in particular ways, could wind up achieving objectives with which we're entirely congenial in trying to uh, prohibit it. So again, focusing at the level of results, we could say, your law, your law looks on the surface like it nullifies our law, but it doesn't. It fulfills our law. It, it helps achieve the very same objectives, or at least it could well enough so that we'll stay our hand until there's real evidence on the ground to suggest the contrary. And I think that's a fascinating, uh, because pragmatic, because transparent, like the memo says all this, like it lays it out. It's not like it's hiding the ball. Uh, it, it talks very explicitly about this way of approaching the, the conundrum. Uh, and I think it, it highlights in the way that you and Christian have been talking about, it, it really highlights the importance of discretion and the nature of trust in the executives involved, both at the state level and at the national government level. And I think maybe that's getting to that very last bit of your paper where you're starting to talk about, you know, what are courts supposed to do when they're confronted with a case that looks like a traditional Chevron case or some other kind of case? 
do they really have the tools? The people who lose in this executive negotiation, they know they have another place where they can go and, and air their grievance, and it's often a courthouse. So, so what are judges supposed to do um, when they are confronted with this executive negotiation and executive federalism thing that just looks from a from again from a schoolhouse rock point of view just looks totally kooky. Yeah, I mean, so I think you know what they what they will need to do will will probably depend quite a bit um, on the, on the particulars of, of the case. So that's sort of a cop out, but I think a true answer to that. But in in more general terms, it does seem to me like most of the administrative law principles that govern this space, to some extent, some of the other. Um, vertical or horizontal federalism principles having to do with uh, preemption or with the compact clause don't reckon with the integration of states in the federal government the way we were talking about at the outset, um, and so tend to think about administrative law just with respect to the federal government, um, maybe with a sort of background of to the extent the federal government is encroaching on the states. We know that's sort of a bad thing from the legislative federalism context, and it's also a worrying thing with respect to administrative federalism. And so, if anything, being more concerned about federal executive action that in some sense enters what the courts are thinking about as a state domain. And so what I'm trying at least to suggest, um, although again, it will require working through in particular doctrinal areas that may look different, is that courts might feel, um, might rightly feel more comfortable, more confident about executive federalism than about federal executive action alone. So the fact that the states and the federal government, for example, in the marijuana context, are reaching a sort of um, detente, a sort of agreement that does only extend to those states that are choosing to legalize marijuana as a matter of state law, though, of course, the neighboring states then sue, saying uh, it's preempted as a matter of federal law. So not everyone agrees, not everyone agrees with this um, account. But I think we see, since we see different um, uh, state and therefore effectively different federal laws across the states, there's a greater amount of input, a greater amount of democratic uh, accountability in these state-federal interactions um, that maybe would give the courts reason in a time when we are seeing more and more, um, or at least have been seeing more and more action undertaken within the administrative um, agencies based on at least arguable broad delegations from Congress, but clearly courts that are concerned about the extent of agency action uh, under these open-ended provisions or provisions that were not particularly designed to address current circumstances since they're quite old. Um, the usual stomping grounds of Chevron, um, but with bigger questions, major questions doctrine at issue, um, that maybe the fact that states are involved with respect to these programs under either a Chevron analysis, under a preemption analysis, um, uh, or or otherwise might provide a degree of comfort uh, for the for the courts. Just just to jump in, the Chevron being that that doctrine that courts use to defer to the judgments of administrative agencies. So in in their interpretation of ambiguous federal law. So if a federal statute says something like you know, that the agency shall take, you know, reasonable, you know, will will prohibit unreasonable, oh, I don't know, uh, uses of a certain kind of machinery. And it's not clear what unreasonable is. And the agency defines unreasonable in a certain way. The court will defer to that definition, even if in the first instance, it would have done something different if the, if it determines that unreasonable is ambiguous and that the agency's uh, definition is a, a permissible and basically reasonable one. Now, what's interesting, Christian, about your example is that it's, it is vintage Chevron in that it sort of assumes the, the question at issue is interstitial gap filling or 
uh, elaborating on something that's expressly and plainly been given to the agency to elaborate on, in that case, the word unreasonable. And and the, the more challenging cases recently don't involve that. They involve mm-hmm. really big gaps in statutes. Right. And uh, with con- congressional gridlock, uh, the executive having to do something to respond to people's real wants and real problems and real needs says, Okay, we're going to take this gaping hole in the statute, and we're going to do the following things. Do, right? the, cor- do the courts fill it, or or do the or did the or do the agencies fill it? And there are big holes. Like, did Congress intend to provide subsidies well, on federal exchanges? Right. Well, we're talking about an mm-hmm. instance where you know an agency fills it. Someone is someone's ox is gored by that particular way the agency chose to do it. So they go to court, and. And now we're confronted with something we could talk about in Chevron terms. Of course, in that in that in the case that you just mentioned, King against Burwell, the the court says, you know what? It's not a Chevron thing. It's too big a question. So their way of dealing with Chevron was to say, don't use it, don't use it, which you know translates into we're going to fill the gap. This is too important for agencies to do. So so the courts are going to fill the gap. Yeah, and this is and this is what I what I find so so interesting about uh, Jessica, your discussion. In terms of thinking, you know, a court could say, well, look, uh, if what, what matters is uh, or what is influential to us in terms of good decision making is if the federal government has incorporated lots of insights from active engagement with state governments, because all of these people are, are engaged in the process of making the statute actually function, um, then, then the fact that there's been that engagement should make us more ready to accept the conclusion, not less ready yeah, to accept that's the conclusion. I was going to bring up the same thing, that, that setting Chevron to one side, there's, been, there's another doctrine, Skidmore, which says, you know what, we will defer to the agency to the extent that, right, it is exercising actual expertise, that it's doing all these things. In other words, we'll look at things other than, our, than, than the brute fact of our agreement or disagreement with their particular right. interpretation. And what Jessica suggests in the paper, I take the argument to be that, Lots of collaboration and interaction with states is an indication of increasing expertise. But here's my question, right? Because uh, the and it and it comes from the other part of the paper where y- you, I think, very effectively talk about uh, the the fact that if if you're not engaging on the question of our polarized politics, you sort of you're not in the game. You're not a ser- you're not seriously engaging with real life. Okay, that there isn't just going to be one state. There are going to be R states and D states. And depending Mm -hmm. on the issue and the case, Mm -hmm. you're going to have some states saying, yeah, we fully engaged. And you're going to have other states saying, this is an abomination. We've been frozen out. And and you shouldn't listen to states. Yeah. Even though that sounds like they're arguing against their own interest. Well, it's because their interest is R's and D's. It's not states and feds. Right. Right. So, So how does that, I mean... What do yeah. you, what do you make of the R and D problem in uh, in the in the litigation where we're having a Chevron argument about engaging the states? Some of the states are going to say, you know, to hell with you. I don't want to engage with you. You guys are engaged in a something I want nothing to do with. I certainly don't want to help it succeed. Right. So I I mean I think where I come down, and it certainly won't make everyone happy, but is to to think about this as a longer term and sort of more iterative process than just the simple outcome in the courts. So I'm not arguing for the fact that, let's say, the federal agency consulted with the states means that the federal agency should get more deference. There are some arguments like that in the literature about the extent to which courts should defer to to agencies under a sort of classic safeguards of federalism kind of approach as incorporated into the administrative state. What I'm trying to think about instead is ways in which the 
federal agencies wouldn't just have spoken to state stakeholders in the first instance, but would be building states into the implementation of federal law itself. So um, in some of the examples we've been talking about, either deferring actually to state law, as in the case of marijuana, um, or which is not going to be a Chevron challenge, but um, or in the case of, say, the clean power plan, which will be a very controversial example for reasons we can get into, but having the states be uh, the frontline implementers, having them have authority to implement the federal law and critically to do so in somewhat diverse ways. So it's against the idea, which is one of the justifications that's emerged um, in the literature by uh, my colleague Peter Strauss for Chevron as uniformity enhancing. So in contrast to having lots of different federal court of appeals decisions, let's say you get Chevron so that the one federal agency issues its one decision that gets deference. And so you have um, national uniformity. Um, I'm not making that sort of argument for uniformity. I'm I'm accepting actually a degree of difference, diversity within federal policy as an ongoing matter created by state involvement. So that's where to come to specifically to the partisan point. Um, I think you're absolutely right to suggest, well, states, when they're um, involved in litigation, are just either in some predictable uh, sense going to be challenging or supporting whatever the federal agency policy is, um, if we're thinking about a particular uniform federal policy. I think that's probably true. Um, and so trying to figure out how there are uh, courts might create or at least bless uh, ways for states to continue to engage, to push back against, to create diverse uh, versions of federal policy or state policy that's feeding into federal policy on the back end would really be the rationale or the basis for having some kind of um, uh, greater deference in this context. Now, will all of the states be happy with this? It's hard to imagine. So the Republican states that are bringing the suit, uh, largely Republican states that are bringing the suit against the Clean Power Plan, don't think um, that just because they have implementation authority, that because there's a degree of, of deference to state decisions, because states um, have different targets for greenhouse gas um, reductions, that they are being empowered. They think the federal government is encroaching on their terrain. So again, it's right. not to be sort of Pollyannish about this, but I do think both from sort of federalism principles and administrative law principles, the fact of having both state and federal actors in the administration of a federal scheme on an ongoing basis um, means that the court is not resolving the issue for all time. It's just, uh, I mean, you know, it's going to alter the bargaining conditions a little bit, but we're going to keep seeing both the D states and the R states maybe take take their um, policies in somewhat different directions, but within the context of a broader scheme that involves state and federal conversation and and participation. How much is this is a matter of degree? Um, in that you know the traditional kind of cooperative federalism model is you know we have in the Clean Air Act the state can have its own implementation plan. You know their federal targets and. And if you can show us that you can meet it, we'll let you basically administer these this permitting process. And they're administering a federal policy if they want to. They don't have to, but if they want to. And uh, and and so the states and 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 the feds are are partners in a program which is is really like a, a federal a, a matter of federal policy. Whereas with the, these other um, like marijuana, it seems we're talking about a uh, an agreement which which if it were passed in a statute, I, I imagine this would violate like equal footing or something. If, if Congress passed a statute which says that consumption and possession of marijuana 
will be illegal in the following 32 states, but legal in the other 18. I, would, I, you know, I'm betraying my ignorance of the equal footing doctrine in, in con law, but w- wouldn't, wouldn't there be a problem with that? I mean, whether it's equal protection or, or equal footing. And, and, and if there would be a problem with that, why wouldn't there be a problem? You, you're shaking your head. No, you don't well, think there might, would be a problem? I mean, there might be a problem with phrasing it that way, but, and, and I'm interested uh, to hear Jessica's view on this, but I think looking back to, uh, to prohibition uh, of alcohol and, uh, and then its repeal and aftermath and, and thinking about some of the legislative proposals that have been introduced in the last few Congresses by people like Representative Warabacher in California um, uh, and, and the current appropriations measure that's in place now, uh, which stops uh, the DOJ from using federal resources to enforce against people who are complying with state medical marijuana law. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The way you phrase it is you just say, uh, in, in essence, um, uh, the Controlled Substances Act uh, doesn't apply to persons who are complying with uh, state law with respect to marijuana. Yeah, but and so is, you let the individual states make right. their choices about this is exactly, what they want to do. This is exactly my yeah. point, though. So if, if that were true, if that's in a statute, so there, there's a different kind of procedural, and this gets to Jessica's paper, really, there's a different kind of procedural valence to a, a scheme which, by which Congress lays out a general rule applicable everywhere, but then allows states to act officially to uh, exempt themselves from that rule or to adopt even stricter rules, you know, they, where, where basically the federal, the, the, the federal law is a tool that states can use and adjust up or down, right? And it's clear from the statute that's how that works. Um, where it's also clear that if the, if the federal government just passed a statute which says these states but not those states, at least I can foresee there might be a problem with that, right? If it said Washington state, marijuana is illegal, Idaho, it's perfectly legal. And, and the executive federalism piece, this kind of negotiated thing where, where a state's exemption from marijuana law is kind of a matter of grace or at least of negotiation with, a, with an executive official seems different than both of those examples. It, it, it seems... Like it, you could describe it in one way, like the statute, which is absolute, which treats states differently. Because there's nothing. I mean, would would a court evaluate whether the same terms were offered to Nebraska and Colorado in terms of marijuana enforcement, and then decide, well, they're the same terms, and and those terms were a reasonable implementation of the statute, therefore it's okay? Or would we say there's some kind of equal protection or equal footing doctrine because the same terms were not offered to both states. Colorado was treated differently than Washington in the kinds of negotiations that were had. I don't know if I'm taking this in a direction you guys don't want to take it, but it's lurking in the back of my mind as, as one of the key questions about legitimacy of, of the kind of negotiated experiential executive federalism that you described, Jessica. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting how much would depend on, I mean, so there's certainly the legislative versus executive dimension, which we can talk more about, but even just in the fully legislative um, sort of lawmaking process that you're suggesting about different ways of treating different states differently, there may be uh, what some have called sort of an etiquette, you know, keeping with Justice Kennedy, etiquette of federalism yeah. that would prevent the naming of states, the singling out of states as such, um, even though, um, as uh, as we were saying allow easy workarounds to achieve the same results. And maybe that's, you know, if, if the workaround is because you have to be as the federal government deferring to state decisions rather than as the federal government or Congress in particular singling out states yourself, um, then maybe that's more than etiquette that might actually matter. I mean, the, the in some ways, the most analogous 
voting, uh, example voting to rights. me, I think yeah. is, well, there's voting rights, but so then there's Shelby County and then the equal yeah. sovereignty. But then, you know, after that case, everyone says, is the court really about to take this principle seriously? Because that would invalidate a lot of federal laws if taken sort of to the to the limit. And so far, it doesn't seem that the court is interested in taking that principle um, very seriously. If you think about, you know, in the clean, um, the Clean Air Act and the way in which Congress expressly in the statute. It doesn't say California. It just says basically a state that has in place by a certain date these vehicle emissions standards, which is only California. Right. So it does effectively single out the single state. Um, it doesn't name it, but and it sets a sort of um, neutral standard that potentially other states could have uh, uh, met, but didn't uh, based on the timing. So uh, very, much like the, very to, much like the Voting Rights Act. Very, yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. a there's a very clear um, uh, different treatment. Then there's the um, allowance for other states to decide they'd rather adopt California standards rather than the federal uh, vehicle emissions standards. So you have a sort of opportunity for other states, but not to do their own thing, to do either of these two um, other jurisdictions um, things, uh, California's or the federal government's. Um, so there doesn't, I mean, I think there are, and there are other examples too with, with gaming, with lotteries, um, with Congress treating states differently, but it does seem, um, and maybe this is the voting rights um, uh, analogy, although I'm, I'm wary of making too much of um, that in a sort of, uh, to, to extrapolate too much from that, but but the difference between Congress um, deferring to state decisions versus Congress sort of in, what, in the court's view, imposing on different states differently, mm -hmm. that may actually be a quite significant distinction. You could imagine that getting traction, I think. I mean, I could imagine getting traction with respect to legislation. Um, my article, again, not focusing on legislation, presuming its absence, really, but thinking about the, um, the version of that in the uh, executive context. So I don't know that there are a lot of resources already in, certainly in the doctrine, um, what I'm trying to do is, is uh, help create a path to thinking about them with respect to executives and administrative officials treating different states um, differently. But again, maybe there is this important distinction between whether that's sort of seen as purely top-down coming from the federal executive branch versus coming from the states themselves, the states in um, you know, cooperation or at least some kind of dialogue with the federal executive branch. I think that distinction should matter there as well. Well, well to extend that, do, are you worried at all about 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 the federal government using I, it? We talk about this in terms of zoning, right? That like strict zoning restrictions are basically a source of capital for a local jurisdiction, and it can buy things from developers with that capital. Are you mm -hmm. concerned that that enforcement authority in the federal government is essentially a source of capital that it can use to bargain with states like you know to the extent that we have a negotiated settlement about marijuana enforcement would it matter to you that one of the reasons that the federal government gave you know this is not what happened but assume but suppose suppose the federal government agrees with um i don't know florida not to enforce marijuana laws basically in florida um and and florida did you know expanded medicaid uh in exchange and all that was like discussed i mean that that would be a problem no or do you know what I mean? I mean, it seems like uh, once we say that that negotiations uh, between executive officials is a way of actually realizing important democratic values, even if some of it is not entirely transparent in the um, uh, in the process dimension um, rather than just the policy dimension. Are, are you concerned that, um, well, that we could cross certain lines there? Because one thing negotiators do is log roll. 
right? They they try yeah. to create the they try to expand the space within which to reach agreement by adding issues to the table on which they could trade. Yeah, and, and you can so think what about negotiators other, do so. Right. So you could bring in all of the negotiation issues, log rolling, and other ones too. Sure. Yeah. So ha, have you thought about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, you know, so I haven't thought about that in particular, but I guess I would say, you know, it's where is the line between, you know, sort of some amount of log rolling and then do, do you want, it sounds like you're suggesting maybe, or if I could um, read into your comments, you know, a, a sort of um, principle in this context that, that sounds a lot like actually the anti-coercion logic of the Supreme Court's decision in the uh, Medicaid expansion part of NFIB versus Sibelius, some idea um, that the federal government in negotiating with states um, about using its spending class, so again, a, di a different context, but um, can't be putting sort of everything on the table, um, in part just because of the, the differential power of the two. So I'm not as concerned with the I think the Supreme Court got the Medicaid expansion issue wrong. I mean, I, I just, you know, don't have a problem with legislation that um, that does what that did. Uh, my concern is not necessarily with the coercion in the right context. It, it's mm -hmm. with it's with the kind of the use of ambiguous authority as a source of capital in negotiation. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, the fact that the you know if the, if there is statute, well. I'm not saying this well. Do you, do you know what I mean, Joe? I, I'm, I want to kick the ball over to you. Well, I, I'm not sure I know. I, I, I think I have an <laughs> you allied... You you can't read my mind? <laughs> I have an allied concern simply about uh, discretion and the way in which discretion is channeled or not, and my suspicion that courts are not good institutional... In, they're not well-equipped institutionally to uh, engage in very... Uh, detailed after-the-fact assessments of executive discretion um, in, any, in any reliable way. Uh, the fact, the reason that that concerns me in this context is because um, you took a step in the direction, Christian, in your discussion about your Florida hypothetical, where, you know, this, this discussion about executives negotiating starts to look a little bit more like the five families meeting in The Godfather yeah. than, than like, you know, a nice... Uh, sort of a meeting of the governor's association at which the president gives a speech, right? Yeah. So I, 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 I'm. It is making me uncomfortable, and I guess it's just because I'm I'm rooted in the more schoolhouse rock federalism models and the tools that I feel are familiar to me. Yeah. Well, like legislation in the Affordable Care Act, the the terms of Medicaid expand. They're out in the open, and terms which are out in the open seem a little bit seem a little bit different. Whereas in my in my mind's eye, I'm seeing some kind of, frankly, like Trump people trump goons if you like i'll say it uh uh um, yeah and, say, and say, i don't come, know that come, i want from I the irs like saying like you know don't worry florida you know you were good to us in the election um we will we will do 50 percent less audits in this state if you do the following other things and all that's behind closed doors we know some of the terms and not others that to me is bothersome but it seems to be you know the irs doesn't have to audit everybody um, I, I I don't know all the tax laws about what you know, maybe there are some particular statutes governing how frequently they do audits and and what kind of discretion they have, but but maybe there there are plenty of laws as to which that discretion is open ended. Uh, right. So if it's not the IRS, it's someone else who can make a who can make such a deal. That that seems to be the dark side so of Jessica's like, positive story. Yeah, and I we got, of course Jessica, we need to we need to hear from you, but I can't resist making this one last remark, which is that which is that because this is how it goes with us. Yeah, it's. Very, um, it, it's I feel like there's another, there's sort of a, an article in Invisible Ink sort of waiting to pop out here called, <laughs> called, you know, something like Our Discretion or 
or discretionary federalism, or some, where, where we've got to really engage on this question of executive discretion and, and its limits and its, uh, and its offices and its benefits, right? What are your thoughts on, on the craziness that we're engaged in here? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I guess a lot of this, a, 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 a basic point, just for starters, which is not speaking to the main concern, which I'll try to come to, um, but it's just in terms of this sort of, uh, back to the sort of where we started with the log rolling and the sort of, I'll bargain with you over this versus this. I do think the ease with which we can, in our minds, try to log roll and lump together lots of different things is probably belied by the way that the federal government itself is divided into uh, many, 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 many different agencies and actors and branches. So it's not, sure. um, unless you assume everything is going through the White House and the president, which I think is not generally a fair assumption. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to imagine even practically how that really happens. Um, but I but I, but I, I just want to say that, but I appreciate that's not the main concern and this concern about executive discretion. Um, I think my response there, which is, again, not to be too calm about the state in which we, we find ourselves, but is to say the federalism piece, I really don't see as adding the danger. So I think the... Um, the executive discretion piece is a real question, is one of the pressing sort of constitutional and also political and practical questions of our time, just how much discretion, how much power does the president, does the White House, and then maybe um, the administrative uh, state writ large, but I think mostly we're talking here then about the president and the White House, have. Um, totally fair. That's the, a totally the fair answer has really in um, a lot. And again, there's a lot of commentary sort of um, I, that I assume will, will probably not be making this point right now, but has traditionally been calling <laughs> for, for more um, along lines of political accountability. You never know who the president is. The president has the national mandate, won the, won the um, usually popular vote. Um, and so we have, you know, a, a sort of reason to trust that. Or on the other hand, we have these agencies that are expert. And so to the extent there's just needing to be policy and um, uh, decisions going forward, there's going to be discretion and best to put it in the executive branch. And I've always, like I said, been a little bit worried about that, even when the president was someone I felt, um, uh, you know, confident in. Um, so adding the state, the way I see in, in um, I guess, in your hypotheticals, the state enhancing that discretion is the president or the White House teams up with the particular states that it finds congenial and tries to give them special benefits versus other states. Um, that, you know, I guess is, is certainly not an attractive vision to me, but I'm not sure that's a part of the sort of state federal negotiation as such versus just the power of the federal government. You could imagine if you're trying to set some sort of principles, and I think this is what um, maybe coming back to the log rolling piece a little bit, but on the horizontal plane, um, that uh, the federal government, there should be some kind of requirement. Again, I don't know how you institutionalize this, but at least as a theoretical matter, is forced um, to be somehow engaging with all of the states. Now, I, again, I've suggested I don't believe that there has to be a uniform policy for all the states. So a lot would then depend on what that kind of engagement means. If the engagement means we treat state A well and state B badly, that's not getting you very much. Although I tend to think, at least with respect to program implementation, different for things, you know, like IRS audits, as you're suggesting, but things in which the states are themselves helping to implement federal law through a cooperative federalism scheme, or if we define cooperative federalism sort of more generally through some kind of um, uh, cooperation with the federal government and carrying out 
programs, then the very fact that the states are involved, that they are uh, presumably the front line implementers, because the federal government just doesn't have the, the resources for that, I think does guarantee them a sort of important role, important voice that may lead to differentiation across the states, but but is a way of sort of tempering the unilateral power, the executive discretion of the federal government. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking about like a, 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 a combined effect that, so, so if you think of like DACA and DAPA as the use by the president of discretion as a source of kind of capital to engage in policymaking, you might praise that as, well, you got to make a decision and you're doing so transparently through a rule that achieves other good ends that we the legislature is having trouble achieving, or you might you might criticize that as you're appealing to an electoral constituency using this capital you have. You know, this is the kind of conservative right. critique of this stuff. Um, but but it, at the very least, that isn't like an, an open. Um, a, 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 it, it's like an it's it's an open statement of how that enforcement power will be used. And so mm-hmm. maybe when you combine it with the executive federalism piece, the problem is you have maybe you know imagine DACA or DAPA where where there was a negotiation with each state behind closed doors. And what came out is like, you know, 45 or, or 40 different kinds of agreements about the level of enforcement of the immigration laws in various states. And some yeah. of it, some of it's like under the table. So, you, so, so not all of it is clear about how the enforcement will occur. So, yeah. So, yeah. What do well, you think? I think, I think, I mean, I actually think, I think the federal, I mean, I think this would be controversial. I think the federalism sort of variant or the executive federalism variant of DAPA or DACA, actually has a lot to say for it, especially, I mean, you know, it's all, um, you know, I guess sort of water under the bridge now in terms of the possibilities for him. But it actually yeah. struck me um, that one possibility for Dapa and Daka after the Texas litigation and after, you know, depending on what had happened with the presidential election, even if Clinton had been elected, that one possibility would be that we might have had a sort of regional um, or state-based Dapa or Daka policy and not actually a nationally uniform policy. Um, you know, so for those who support the policies, is that a loss, a cost to have states, um, some of which, you know, are, are, are fully on board and some of which aren't, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually think in keeping with the sort of um, the, the examples I talked about in the paper where the states are involved, having the state input, having the state commitment and the state buy-in in many ways um, is really useful for the success of federal programs for their, you know, perceived legitimacy for, um, the working out of the kinks. I mean, it's on the one hand, you know, the other way to come at it too, is to say, even with these programs in place, um, the kind of variation we see in immigration enforcement through both the, um, field offices of the federal agencies themselves through ICE, but also through state and local participation in different ways, um, we're still going to see a tremendous amount of variation that's not captured in a single policy statement of the federal executive branch or of Congress, certainly. So to have state input, state involvement, um, which again, I don't, I don't uh, suggest should be all under the table. I think there can be conversations that happen <laughs> without public visibility, but at the end of the day, there has to be, as we see in the, you know, in the marijuana example, there are things we don't see, there are conversations yeah. we don't see, but we do have these memos. We do have these um, uh, statements by federal and state actors alike that explain what they think they're doing. Um, so some kind of um, uh, uh, publicity, you know, at the end of the day or in an ongoing fashion, I actually think the sort of federalism variant of these programs um, has, has something to commend it. I think what it emphasizes for me is the the fact that um, 
there are there are some process imperatives here with these log rolling hypotheticals that 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 make me wonder or or cause me to to sort of think okay uh for example i know that there are some states uh, uh constitutions and or, or other measures where they have these sort of single subject rules mm-hmm. uh, and and they're I, I think they're they're somewhat hard to manage actually uh and they and some of them involve judicial review uh for sim- for single subject uh, uh, co- uh coherence and adherence uh, but I think something like that might need to be an important process addition to thinking through the sorts of arrangements that uh, executives might might make uh, and and will continue to make because the energy, I mean, I think you're the one inside of the paper that just sort of like there's an energy behind this, which is about uh, people who are elected to offices wanting to solve problems for their constituents. And that's not going to change uh, with a Congress that's uh, as as uh, uh, gridlocked as this one is, um, and uh, and I take your point on on regionals. I, I noted today, I think it was just today, where I saw a new paper of yours in in an SSRN email. I think it's called Our Regionalism. Yeah. Uh, and so I, your this regional stuff is is clearly on your mind as well. I guess that'll be maybe we'll have to take that up next. I think we're kind of out of time, right, Christian? It's getting we've been at this for a while. Yeah. Unless there's something, Jessica, that if we didn't bring it up now would be. Um, it, it would would totally do a disservice and an injustice to your very interesting article. <laughs> yeah, which we don't want to do because your article's awesome. No, this is great. It's been great. It's been really uh, wonderful talking to both of you about this. So, and as you said, I've been working on regionalism a little bit. So I've been, um, for my own purposes, a little removed from from federalism. So it's nice to get back into it and, and cool. chat about it. Well, you are my um, you are my federalism guru. You didn't know that, but now you do. <laughs> uh, and so thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks so much, Jessica.